Hello again and welcome to this latest episode of Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Yamaha have brought to the USA the SP version of their mighty MT-09. Although Yamaha has had SP versions of some of its models for a while now, this is the first time we've had the SP version of this model. Nick DeSena had a chance to ride it and tells us about the changes to the MT-09 SP and why it's worth the extra coin. Regular listeners and readers of our various publications know our editor Don Williams quite well. However, it is less likely that you know he is a major fan of independent live music, especially here around the Los Angeles area. This week, Don chats with Mike McGran, lead singer of the punk band Channel 3. Mike is a musician and a motorcycle guy too. Please visit Channel 3 on Spotify and other major music platforms. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thanks for jumping on board, sir. Uh, what bike is it we're going to chat about today? The 2021 Yamaha MT-09 SP. So it's the up-spec model of the MT-09. Okay. Got to say, I, I really like the MT-09. Um, I had one on sort of extended, uh, extended loan and riding a few months ago. And it just sort of does everything well. I mean, part of me says, well, it's not the MT-10, which is the MT-09 on steroids, but, um, but I like the MT-09's three-cylinder three -cylinder motor. I, I like so much about it. The, I guess, firstly, what are the differences between the, the stock version that I rode and this SP version? Yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty slim differences that actually make up a kind of significant margin between the two bikes without a huge price differential as well. With the SP version, you get a you know smattering of aesthetic upgrades. Uh, you know, in terms of looks, it tries to mimic the illustrious YZF R1M in terms of its uh, color scheme and things like that. You get a double stitch seat, which looks a bit prettier and. I suppose to my my derriere seems a little bit more comfortable, although that may just be a placebo effect of having a more <laughs> attractive seat. Oh, I could definitely feel that double stitching. <laughs> yeah, in, indeed, indeed. You know, just it, I think it falls in the look good, feel good category. Okay. And and then the the functional differences and and what you're actually paying for is fully adjustable suspension all around, and that comes in the form of an Olin shock, and then you have a fully adjustable KYB fork. And mechanically, um, Yamaha has also upped the damping rates uh, front and rear when compared to the, the base model. What, what does damping rates mean to you? Uh, they just stiffened the damping overall, stiffen the damping circuits. So if you were to jump on each bike, and just compare it in terms of base level suspension settings between each model, the SP will have just that extra hint of chassis stiffness sort of baked into it right from the get-go uh, without having to turn any knobs or anything like that. Okay. All right. I mean, the reason I asked that is because 
the difference always for me between high-end suspension and you know ordinary suspension so-called is the higher end suspension has less stiction and therefore reacts faster so it reacts faster to bumps um, and that translates to a much more planted feeling of the tires on the tarmac um, and and a better handling stiffer motorcycle overall or stiffer if you want it to be um, but faster reacting suspension is a big upgrade for me over slower suspension i'm not sure if i'm making myself clear but do you understand what i mean yeah no i i see what you're getting at with you know, and i would agree with higher quality suspension if you're looking at say let's go from a a lower end kyb fork or shock and then compare it to a higher end olin's component equivalent component on a, a much more expensive bike you know, like you said, less stiction. And to the SP's point, the fork features a DLC coating on the fork stanchions. So that's going to reduce stiction, allow for a far more um, fluid movement throughout the stroke up and down, and just add to the more refined feel. And that's often a buzzword that will sort of sum up almost everything that you said in one word in reviews, because what we're doing is highlighting the the fact that the suspension just overall in its downstroke, so it's compression stroke in compression stroke and its rebound stroke just works much better. It has a much more fluid movement. It just feels like it can gobble up uh, road impurities much easier without translating more into the rider. Um, and it, it feels like it can take more abuse as well. And that's typically what we're getting at when we talk about higher end suspension, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. And in the SP's case, I would say it's a noticeable bump up from the, the stock stuff, which is good in its own right. This is just that extra step. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was alluding to, is faster reacting, more fluid feeling suspension. DLC, for those who don't know what it stands for, stands for diamond-like coating. Um, and actually, I seem to remember Suzuki came out with it on the Jixxers years ago. I mean, this is stuff is probably 20 years old. But essentially, it's that black-looking coating that you get on the sliders, um, the super shiny, nothing will stick to that. Um, and it's also incredibly hard, I guess, hence the diamond-like. Um, but it, it, it basically prevents the seals from sticking to the slider as the slider moves in and out. Um, therefore making the, uh, reducing the stiction and making the, the suspension react very quickly and giving the bike a really smooth feel um, over, over the surface. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, DLC coatings are used in numerous applications and in motorcycle and automotive uh, capacities. Uh, a lot of the times we'll see them in suspension and most obvious on the fork stanchion. And it, like you said, it's identified by a dark uh, pigment on the fork stanchion. So instead of having that typical gold Olin's or just a chrome tube, um, when, and Olin's uses a, a different uh, coating on the, the tubing for the same purposes to reduce friction, um, 
you know, you can identify it immediately by the dark coloring. Um, you know, and, and internally on, on engine components, a lot of the times you'll see rocker arms and things like that featuring DLC uh, coatings basically to make them more durable. Um, and that's something that we've seen improve uh, engine reliability in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years as we moved forward. Um, but yeah, you know, the main difference between the standard bike and ESP is of course suspension. The last thing that you get that uh, if we're honest, I feel like the base model should have just had from the get go is a uh, cruise control. Wow. That's interesting. It is. So it's the last of the, the electric accoutrement <laughs> that, um, you know, quite honestly, I feel like bikes of the MT-09 stature when they have ride-by-wire throttles and just the bevy electronics that the bike has already, which is IMU supported traction control, slide control, cornering ABS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you have the electronics up to that standard and it's missing cruise control, I feel like that's a bit of a miss considering that this is really primarily a street bike. Now with the SP, you get it. Okay, Yamaha is absolved of the, the knuckle wrapping and in this case, but you know, it's got to be brought up. Right. It's got to be brought up. The the stock MT09 comes with a with a quick shifter, doesn't it? Quick up and down. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and this is no different. You know, it's it's one of the things where when the most recent iteration of the MT09, the 2021, came out, it was a huge leap forward for the platform overall. So. With that, you had the uh, up-down quick shifter, IMU supported the electronics that we've mentioned before, but the main thing that the MT-09 fixed was its chassis and suspension. And to that end, and just sort of rehash the facts because we have covered the MT-09 in the past, you know, they significantly stiffens the aluminum chassis, significantly stiffens the, the uh, swing arm, and also upgraded the suspension and changed geometry and pushed a lot of the weight bias towards the front end by lowering uh, the front end as well. So you ride a little bit more on the front wheel, uh, sort of the same way that a typical super sport or super bike would be designed in terms of geometry. Not to that extreme, obviously, but what it's done is it's really given the MT09's chassis much more purpose and by fixing all of those uh, sort of flexibility issues of the past, you really get to the core of one of the biggest complaints about the MT09 of the you know 14 plus into uh, you know the second gen generations, which was you know softer suspension. Well, it wasn't just soft suspension; it was actually a softer chassis, as you know, judging by the upgrades that we have on these bikes now. Right, and to me that has just transformed fundamentally what the MT09 is. Before it was a really solid bike, amazing value, awesome engine, and you could work with the, the, the chassis and suspension. Now that chassis is pretty darn good. So with- Yeah, the, like the MT09 was always, was always a bit soft. One of my, one of my best friends who um, just for a little bit of useless trivia, he's the guy that actually designed the Motos and Friends logo that everybody knows and loves. But anyway, um, Matt has had an a, a earlier generation MT-09. And 
the really the major upgrade he made to it was the suspension. It was just way too soft for him. And, and I always felt that. So I think this is a big step, you know, swapping out the suspension like this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it created a, a pretty big parity between the performance that you got from the original 847cc triple cylinder motor and now the, the updated uh, 890 uh, triple cylinder motor. But you had just an awesome motor. And pretty much every review, whether you're talking about American moto journalists or European, whatever, everyone completely gives, you know, just thunderous applause to, you know, the sure. CP3 engine because it's amazing. Now, yeah, the, well deserved. Yeah. Yeah. Well deserved. The, the sort of uh, performance disparity comes in the form of, well, you have an amazing engine and then sort of, overly street focused suspension that's definitely on the soft side so you have a just a a punchy punchy motor <laughs> and then a suspension that eh, doesn't necessarily keep up with all those punches <laughs> right. so and that's that's what i really want to get across about not only the base model mt09 but to further that point the mt09 sp with the upgraded suspension you know one of the best experiences i had with some of the early generation mt09s was riding bikes that had upgraded suspension. I remember riding a fully specked out uh, Graves Motorsports uh, MT09 a number of years ago, but that was one of the best bikes um, in terms of you know MT09s that I've ridden. Just fully sorted out, geometry totally perfect because you have a mind like Chuck Graves at the helm building it, and uh, you know ostensibly no real budget. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah. it really changed it. And with the modern MT09, you don't have to go ahead and spend, you know, $2,000 to get a bike that is ready to rip out of the box. Um, with the, the SP version, you know, it's, it does feel a little bit stiffer, obviously. And, and that's something that, that translates into just, that extra step of sportiness that you can extract when you're in the canyons without really, you know, giving up anything in the street. And that's, that's kind of the main takeaway because often when we talk about some of the bigger, more uh, sport oriented naked bikes in, uh, in the class, when we go to the, the thousand CC plus leader bikes, like the Tuono factory, uh, super Duke R, you know, the uh, speed triple 1200 RS, things like that the criticism of those bikes is well they are extremely sport oriented and therefore can be slightly uncomfortable on the street because they have so much trek prowess baked in the mt09 isn't like that and dsp isn't like that either this is really a you know true blue street bike sure it'd be a ripping fun little track bike for the casual track day but you can live with this thing you can have fun with it in the canyons on the weekend. You can commute on it. You can go to the shop. You can do everyday normal motorcycle things and not, you know, be saddled down with uh, 170, 180, 190 horsepower, like, you know, the Ducati Street Fighters, V4s, um, Tuonos, Super Duke cars, bikes of that upper echelon, super naked class. This is just a classic, sporty, fun, naked bike. Right, without those really hard edges that that some of the really committed 
committed motorcycles have. Are there any other changes? I mean, are there any sort of mapping changes or fuel injection changes? I mean, it sounds as though the motor hasn't been touched. So no, uh, no added anything to the electronics or anything like that? Correct. Other than cruise control, the, that's the only additive to the electronics package. Everything is the same between the MT-09 and the MT-09 SP. So fueling is the same, uh, you know, the selectable ride modes, um, your uh, availability for um, customization with the electronics package that you have on hand. You know, obviously with a bike like the MT-09 SP and the MT-09 in general, its electronics are derived from the R1 a series of motorcycles. The difference being you don't get the same level of adjustment that you would on something like the R1. And in reality, you don't really need it. I mean, yeah, it's good to have multiple levels of traction control on a superbike because you may be faced with tire degradation, you know, lap after lap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can really hone in on where you need uh, grip to be or what, you know, the kind of grip that you're facing during that, that track day or race situation or whatever. But with a bike like the MT-09 SP, you have, you know, um, I believe it's two or three TC settings and roughly the same amount of uh, uh, settings for slide right. control and things like that. And that's all you need on a street bike. I mean, sure. you're on the road, let's not get carried away. You know, it's either disable it, use a little bit, or go pretty heavy handed with the, the higher settings. And, um, sure. you know, the lower modes do really let the lead out in terms of, uh, you know, the fun you can have, but for true hooliganism, you're going to want to kill those, uh, rider aids. <laughs> Obviously you can't, right. you can't take out ABS because you're five standards, but, um, right. ABS won't uh, conflict with your, your wheelie abilities. Um, no. there's that, but, you know, and it won't conflict with your stoppy abilities either. No, it's it's not. I don't think it might help them. It's not intrusive at all, really. Um, you know, and and actually on that point, I'm not a sort of hooligan rider that does stoppies and wheelies. My wheelies exist primarily out of exits of corners, on the racetrack, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I can't do dank nooners and put it to the moon and things like that. And I don't do stoppies, but. One point I, I have noticed with um, uh, stoppies in particular is often you'll, you'll hear people like, oh, you can't do stoppies with ABS. That's not true. You just need to load the front end quite progressively because I have seen unnamed uh, staff that happen to work for this brand that has a tuning fork and a logo do stop with <laughs> ABS enabled bikes and they have no issue doing it. So yeah. Um, you know, you know, ABS only exists if you break break traction with the front wheel, and if you do a stoppy that breaks traction, then you're in trouble anyway. Yeah, you're uh, probably not going to so, have a good no. day. I mean, stoppies are, stoppies are done without breaking traction, so the ABS shouldn't be cutting in. Yeah, if you're just grabbing a handful and doing a stoppy, then you need to you need to work on your technique. Yeah, that's probably called an endo followed by <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, right. Right, exactly. You know, so followed by an ambulance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no big deal there. But um, okay, you know, getting getting back to the DSP and sort of its benefits, I would say, you know, you're looking at the MT09, which I think represents probably 
I, it would be safe to say the best value in the sub 1000 naked by naked by class right now. That's comparing it to the Triumph 765 RS and R, the KTM 890 Duke standard and R models, um, Ducati Monster, uh, you know, things like that. And when you really look at the field, it's an extremely competitive field. However, the MT-09 comes in at $9,400 in the US market specifically. Now, that is a great value because you're getting an awesome motor, awesome chassis, very competent electronics package, IMU supported, and uh, you know comfort as well as handling. The SP for a little bit more change, you know, you're looking at now uh, up to eleven thousand dollars, and you get you know the seat, different looks, and the upgraded fully adjustable suspension uh, and cruise control. You know, you're still coming in right under a lot of the European offerings. Um, so as a point of correction, the BMW F900 series, BMW's naked bike series, their MSRP is really competitive and comes in at that low 9,000 mark. However, per BMW, if you wanna get all the bells and whistles, those are gonna be extras, optional uh, package solutions that you're gonna need to, need to buy at point of purchase. And that pushes it way over the $11,000 mark. Um, so, you know, overall with the SP, it's still an incredible value. Yeah. It's, I mean, would you say that it is basically a $1,600 difference between the stock one and the SP? Yes. Do you think that, do you think that 1600 is sort of, is what money well spent? Yes. I think it's justified because if you go ahead and get the base model MT on ISP, and then you look at it and you go, you know what, for my riding skill level, my preferences, I want to upgrade the suspension. Okay, so now you hop on the Olin's website, you pick out your shock, or you go to you know Race Tech or uh, GP Suspension, uh, whoever you know you get aftermarket suspension. You're looking at between, I would say, conservatively, six hundred to twelve hundred dollars for a shock, and then for cartridge uh, internals replacement cartridges for the, the fork, you're looking at another between seven and a thousand dollars, seven, 700 to a thousand dollars. Right now, just based on that monetary value, you're, you've already exceeded the price differential between the MT09 and the MT09 oh. SP. Okay. So now you've gone yeah. to slightly stiffer, higher level, fully adjustable suspension. Right. Um, and you've spent a couple of grand. Yeah, and you don't have to have it installed. Okay, so you're saving money there too. Um, now the critical difference is when you buy that aftermarket suspension, typically you are getting it uh, sprung and damped specifically for you. Okay, so this is the difference between buying a high-end suit and a custom suit. That high-end suit is going to be really good. The custom suit, is tailored for you and there is no, you know, difference or, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, nothing really makes up for that, that customization. You know, it's, it's personalized sure. for you. Um, sure. 
but yeah, bespoke is always bespoke is always better. It is. It, it, it can be, but but for for the purposes of the typical MTO nine rider, like you say, if you're if you're a real fast track day guy, if you're an, an A group rider and you're pretty serious about your track days, you're probably not going to be riding an MTO nine anyway. No. Um, you're gonna you're gonna be buying an R six or or what have you. Um, you're going to be going for a more super sport oriented type of motorcycle. So I think the MT-09 is primarily a street bike. You know, 95% of them will, will never see a track. The 5% that do see a track, I think they'll have a lot of fun. You put a set of sticky tires on it. If you've got the SP, you dial up the suspension to its stiffest and go out and have a great time. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And I, I think everybody's everybody's good. Nobody's I don't think Yamaha expecting to see the MT-09 win any races, but but I think it's it's a competent enough motorcycle that it can do track days and you can have a great time and you can travel at fast B or even slow A pace. Yeah, so. and no, I I think you know depending on the rider you could easily easily you know keep up with A pace riders and do what you need to do. Um, and with the the chassis upgrades, there is the rumored R9 following in the footsteps of the the R7, you know, using the MT-07 platform and extending that to a, a super sport motorcycle. And there's, uh, you know, somewhat wow. substantiated okay. rumors to support the idea that the MT-09 will be um, converted into an R7 and, or not an R7, an R9. And R9. when you look at the chassis upgrades, the added stiffness, just the competency of the chassis in the new MT-09 platform, whether we're talking about the base or the SP, um, right. there, that stands to reason. And then, you know, back to the SP specifically that, that upgrade in suspension and something that I was playing with, uh, this past weekend up on highway 33, you know, it just adds that extra bit of stability into the, the overall chassis. So you're able to put the bike on its front end with a little bit more confidence. And this is talking about a huge step forward in confidence from the, the previous generations. But above the the current gen MT09 base model, just handles with a little bit more precision everywhere. It still has that really sort of inherent playfulness that an MT09 always had, and it's kind yeah. of interesting because when I think about its direct competitors, you know, I ostensibly you'd look at the class and go, okay, that's an 890 Duke R, um, Triumph Speed Triple 765 RS, but then where my mind always kind of goes to is sort of the more super moto-y bike on the market, the outlier, which is the right. Hypermotard 950s and things like that. Oh. Because it, it really has that, that energy um, in its chassis. It's not, you know, it is a street bike through and through, but it's, it's open to exploring the, the uh, realms of performance and fun, it, we shall say. Um, sure. so, you know, it's overall, it's, it's a very impressive bike, you know, things that I would like to improve upon, you know, certain RPMs, the quick shifter and down and auto blipper are just immaculate. They're actually spot on. <laughs> right. And if you go a little bit low, sometimes at, you know, like, it's like about 5,000 kind of half throttle, it's not too keen on it overall. If you're on the gas, you're being aggressive, the thing works extremely well. It's just right. overall, right. I'd grade it, you know, a solid good to great. 
it's just not up to par with say some of the you know ducati street fighter v4 quick shifters and you know Arpilia tuonos granted those bikes are and at least in the case of the street fighter v4 more than double the price so <laughs> you better be getting an awesome everything on that bike but um, right you know for the price point again and not even for the price point everything you have on this bike works very well the one you know lacking thing we don't have an adjustable clutch lever come on guys clutch lever <laughs> <We're not. laughs> but uh that's all i ask uh, <laughs> um, all right but it sounds it sounds as though you you really like the bike and you think that that it's a worthwhile upgrade and it's actually worth the extra money they're asking Absolutely. And, you know, for the record as well, it's the first time that we've gotten the SP model in the United States. Typically, this has only been offered in select countries from Yamaha. And I've always felt a little, you know, a little bit backhanded by right. my big yeah. blue. I'm like, come on, we, we don't like sport bikes. In right. What's, what's the deal? Yeah, the Americans do not like feeling like the poor relation. This is uh, oh, I just so this is a good move from Big Blue. Okay, yeah, right. You but <laughs> no, with the SP, um, you know, you you get that extra little step. And if you dig the current generation MT09, you're on the fence about well, should I get the, the base model or the SP? For my money, it's always going to be the SP, mainly because you get fully adjustable suspension all around, slightly stiffer higher quality and you get the cruise control and really that price differential it's still not putting it out of uh you know the ballpark of its direct competitors if you look at its class and it's still coming in a little bit cheaper than a lot of those competitors when you factor in the optional accessories that if we're being honest they're not options you should be getting them so um you know it still represents a great value all right yeah i mean and it's it, 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 it's it's an inexpensive, great value motorcycle, hence its popularity. So I think the SP is a good step without taking it out of that that class where exactly. people still say even the SP is still a great value, inexpensive motorcycle. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, mean we're talking we're talking retail price. This is before anybody's even started discounting it. So yeah, so I think before discounts, before dealer fees, before yeah. haggling with uh, you know your your salesman for two and a half days. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. but, so it's a good move by Yamaha definitely a good move absolutely absolutely. alright hey thanks I greatly appreciate your insight as always um, I will uh, talk to you soon okay take care alright thanks bye As you likely guessed, that was a short sample of the song Manzanar, written and performed by LA-based punk rock band Channel 3. 
Don Williams chats with lead singer Mike McGran. Sure, he's a great musician, but he's also a major motorcycle guy too. I hope you enjoy their chat. If you'd like to hear more from Channel 3, you can find them on Spotify and all major music platforms. Which got started first, motorcycle riding or punk rock? <laughs> well, I'm pretty old, so uh, it was definitely motorcycles first. Uh, yeah, when we, uh, we moved out to Cerritos about 1970, and my dad brought home a trail, a little Honda Trail 50 and, uh, and a 70 for my older brothers. And uh, we started riding right off then, you know. We were you know, typical 70s family of the uh, on any Sunday generation, you know, going out to the desert on the weekends. And then uh, eventually I got into racing and the whole SoCal motocross thing. This is the uh, 50th anniversary of Nini Sunday, so we can maybe talk a little bit about that. What, what did you think when you first saw it? Well, you know, here's a strange little story is uh, one, one summer we rented a beach house in Dana Point and our next door neighbor was Bruce Brown. Wow. And uh, yeah, and so I, I played with his kids, uh, Dana and Wade, and we knew that he was a filmmaker that made Endless Summer. And he was he was finishing production on this new motorcycle film. So uh, when it came out, I mean, I just, I made my mom or dad take me down to the theater and see it like every other week, you know, it, I was just so taken by that. And uh, especially by uh, Mert Lowell and all the flat track scenes, you know, I really fell in love with all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I really informed my whole growing up. Yeah, my experience with, with it was that uh, the day it came out, I had my dad take me down to uh, uh, a theater in Rosemead, and I stayed for three consecutive showings. Yeah. Because as, as kids today can't understand, you saw it, and then it was over. You didn't stream yeah. it later. You didn't have a videotape of it. You didn't have a DVD of it. When you saw it, that was the only time you were going to see it, perhaps. And so you really had to make the most of it. Well, you know, it's funny, because I... I I compare it to nowadays, you know, streaming, you know, Supercross on TV every Saturday. Um, and it's, it kind of goes along with uh, us getting into music. Punk rock was something you really had to go and find, whereas now it's, you know, go on YouTube and you see every clip of manageable. But back in the day, you know, to see a, a uh, like a race on Wild World of Sports on Saturday or to see a movie like this was just something really special, like a real community thing. Right, the, the USGP at Carlsbad, they showed once a year, and it was usually about six months after it happened. Right. And, but it was a big deal to see it on TV, and all the, all the heroes, and they have little interviews, and you, you'd see it shot just like it was a, a Super Bowl, and it was always exciting to see that. Yeah, and, you know, we were there for the birth of uh, Supercross. You know, we went to that very first Super Bowl motocross out at the Coliseum, and uh, to think where it's come from there, it's incredible. Yeah, that's funny. As a kid, I, I saw that motocross in the Coliseum. He goes, that's dumb. I'm not going to go to that. <laughs> of course, now I wish I had. But but it took me a little while to warm up to Supercross as as a kid who raced motocross. And so right. so how did you get into racing motocross and what bikes did you did you race? Well, you know, um, I started racing TT out at uh, Elsinore in Paris. Uh Ironically enough, on in Elsinore, we had the very first model CR250Ms, and uh, I was still in junior high, so it was a pretty big bike for me. But 
you know, the, those big old long uh, Elsinores were just perfect for TT racing. And uh, I kind of got into that and didn't get into motocross until I hit high school. And uh, kind of a weird phenomenon back in SoCal in the 70s is there was high school motocross. Remember that? Of course. <laughs> and uh, our team Cerritos was actually uh, CIF sanctioned, which meant that we could get like Letterman jackets and all that for racing motocross, really well organized. And uh, uh, old gent named Jim Manning was uh, in charge of this. And uh, we used to get the uh, secondary track out at Saddleback on Saturdays to do a whole season. So uh, um, we would race there, but we started over at uh, Orange County International Raceway. Remember they had a little nighttime motocross track out there. Yeah, I raced that. Yeah, so we we race that, and then you know there was there's night races out at Ascot we go to. Uh, um, there was the Saturday Saddleback, you know, just kind of open motos that was a lot of fun, and then um, CMC Sundays. So uh, in high school, I was pretty active uh, racing motor motocross, uh, mainly Suzuki's, you know, RM one twenty five, two hundred and fifty, and my last bike really by 79 was a RM 400 N and I always tell kids the last time I raced it, the bike still had two shocks on them. <laughs> <laughs> of course we remember when they had two shocks and three inches of travel. Yeah. So. <laughs> then they started moving them up and laying them down and all that. And uh, next thing you know, single shock on a link. Right. And so by 1979, punk rock must've been on your radar. You, you know, when you think back, uh, the Ramones, as you know, in context, I mean, that was what, 76, 77. So in high school, of course, we knew of the Ramones and uh, the jam and the clash. And it's kind of funny because punk rock by 79, they said, you know, the Sex Pistols had broken up and punk was over. But that was just the beginning of Southern California, hardcore punk rock and all that. And uh I remember my last race was uh, the summer of 79. We were up in Mammoth, and uh, they had that big uh, uphill start, hairpin downhill, and I just went, I just caught traction. I just went straight off that downhill, and I just landed a pile of rocks. And I was kind of like, you know what? I, I've been wanting to get a PA system, so I sold that bike and got some music gear, and we started a punk rock band. Well, as it <laughs> turns out, obviously both have had a huge influence on your life. Uh, 50 years of dirt bike riding or more, and 40 years of, of the band. And so yeah, uh, that's how I first uh, knew you, was I saw you with a KTM shirt or jersey at a show, and I was thinking... What's this guy doing wearing a KTM shirt? I never, never have like uh, put together punk rock and uh, motorcycle dirt bikes. Right. And so, uh, you know, we talked a little bit, and uh, I was surprised. But uh, for the people who aren't familiar with you, Mike is built like an athlete. He's a, he's a tall guy. How tall are you? I'm six five, actually. Yeah, he's 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 a big guy, and uh, not a big fat guy, but a big guy. And he's in, uh, you know, he's in good shape. And he, in, in the world of punk rock, it's a lot of scrawny, skinny guys. And Mike struck me as, as an athletic guy. And I, I knew that they kind of had a different background. And, and Channel 3 came on my radar. They're on Posh Boy Records, which was a, a local uh, record label run by a guy I knew, Robbie Fields. 
And uh, he put out a lot of cool records on there and a lot of uh, uh, contemporaries of Mike's, including Social Distortion, TSOL, Adolescence, and Agent Orange. And you right. were right at the same time as all those bands. And was that part of you getting on Posh Boy? Yeah, you know, um, us getting on Posh Boy was just a matter of, we, we had made a demo tape. We were still kind of a garage band playing mostly covers, Ramones and Clash covers, and we started writing our own songs. And uh, out of boredom, if nothing else, we recorded a little five-song demo, and a friend of a friend got the tape to Robbie Fields, and just like in a cheesy rock and roll movie, the next weekend he was in our garage with a contract, and the next weekend we were recording a record. And we had not even played an actual gig out yet. So this before our first gig at a cuckoo's nest or anything. And uh, to be on Posh Boy at that time, uh, I mean, he was just like the hit maker then. He had the TSL EP, the Rodney on the Rock compilation. So we were kind of thrown headfirst into the world of... Uh, hardcore punk and uh you know we've been trying to catch up that momentum ever since certainly you guys were up to it from a songwriting standpoint i mean manzanar is on that first ep right yeah it was uh one of our first songs actually and uh still one of the songs that we get mentions almost daily of people that have learned about the internment camps through that song yeah tell, tell me the story behind that song and then you can also tell me how that fits in with something you did this week yeah, so, you know, most people know now during World War II, um, they rounded up the Japanese-American citizens on the West Coast and uh, sent them to relocation camps. And my family, my mother, who was actually born in East L.A., um, they sent them back to Arkansas, of all places. Most people know Manzanar as the uh, internment camp, but there were several throughout the country. And... Uh, Unluckily enough, they were sent down south to these this camp in the swamp. But I did have ants that were in Banzar, which is up, uh, you know, up outside the Sierras and outside Lone Pine, California. And it seems to be the most recognized internment camp. But uh, that lesson always seemed to be kind of glossed over in the history books growing up. And so, uh, you know, one of the things of punk rock is, you know, you'll write, you write. Uh, what interests you and there's kind of no uh, limits on what song matter could be and so one of our first songs was called manzanar about episode and uh, like i said I, I still get kids and family saying you know it it brought forth a conversation at dinner about that uh never knew anything about it people stopped by and they all seemed to tag me in the pictures and uh shamefully enough i had never visited manzanar and so uh, just a couple of days ago, I just decided to get on the bike and uh, ride up there. And uh, I, stopped, I stopped in and viewed the barracks and all that. And it's really, it was really a, a, a solemn and, uh, you know, heartbreaking moment to, to see it, but uh, important visit. Right. That's uh, definitely a dark spot in our history. So, and interestingly, Social Distortion, their first single had a song, 1945, about World War II. Right. For whatever reason, the, the Orange County kids in 1980s were, were very interested in World War II history. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, you've gone on to record seven albums with Channel 3? I, I guess. It's, we're, <laughs> we are celebrating our 40th year, 40, really. I, I think COVID just kind of like put a... Put a uh, asterisk on everybody's careers, 
But uh, actually, right now we're preparing a 40-year anniversary uh, compilation, a double album LP set that uh, kind of goes through our whole career. And, uh, you know, starting hardcore punk, we kind of evolved like a lot of bands did in the mid-80s into more of a rock type of thing. And then there was a whole resurgence of the old school punk rock with the internet age. And uh, a strange phenomenon, it's almost every single Southern California band of that era is out there playing, you know, playing well still. Yeah, you guys still now a, a big part of your career, I suppose, is going to Europe and playing festivals. Yeah, Europe is really uh, uh, they have a real interest in that that period of Southern California hardcore. So especially Germany, you can spend the whole summer over there, and of course, there's so many fantastic festivals over there. Uh, for us, it's just a real honor to be able at this stage of our lives to still play and have interest in it. Uh, you know, I, I, we we realized long ago we'd never make a living at doing this. But for me, it's kind of like being on a like a senior uh, bowling league. You know, you just kind of right off of vacation, get to travel around and see old friends and play a game or two. So it's great. Right. Well, somebody saw you 40 years ago and, and is seeing you relatively recently. You guys are still great. Uh, they, uh, if, if, you, if anybody's interested in listening to Channel 3's music and wonders if they're, they deliver live still, they absolutely do, which is not easy, you know, when you start to get into your 60s, uh, we're pretty close. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, I'm into my 60s now, but uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate that compliment. Uh, you know, we, we feel like we probably play better than we ever have now. And, uh, uh, you know the, the the cruel reality is you go play a show and people still want to hear those first uh, couple records you know 40 year old songs but we're happy to play them if people still want to hear them well it does help that even your new records have some good songs on them it's not like one of those like we're gonna play our new song now and everybody goes oh, i gotta go to the bathroom or i'll go get a beer <laughs> uh the material has you've slowed down the the, the num- amount of material but you've kept the quality up yeah, and you know when we when we have to come up with a set list for that night, it it gets a little more difficult because we look back and our catalog is you know how many hundred songs now, but uh, you know we always do have to go revisit those first classics and we'll just pepper in some of the new ones. So uh, you know it's it's been uh, very fulfilling to be able to still play. That's awesome. So in '79, you sold your RM400. Right. At what point did you come back to motorcycles? Well, you know, I, I so that was my last dirt bike. And then uh, I bought a BMW R90 slash six in 84. That's a, that's 76 model. And I've always had that Beamer, you know, and, and uh, it's just a bulletproof bike. I mean, I can let it sit for two years and then I just, you know, change the oil and uh, put in fresh gas and things starts right up and, of course, you can always find parts for those guys. So that's always been my street bike. But uh, when I turned 50, my wife, as a present to me, uh, found me an XR600, a plated one. And I went and I did the Barsky's uh, dual sport ride they do every Thanksgiving. And uh, I just had a blast. I mean, it was my first time back on dirt since 89. And uh, a few years ago, I got a Africa twin. So I got into the old man adventure bike uh, segment. So for better or worse, I'm out there uh, riding around the back roads on that thing now. Which, which Africa twin did you get? 
still riding the, the 2016 model, but it's a DCT. And I, I just took a took a chance on that first year model with that dual class transmission. And uh, it's been great, really. Uh, I've been tempted to upgrade, but, uh, you know, I like the products on that bike. You know, nowadays, they, they seem to be, me, it's just like playing music. You know, I'd rather just plug straight in the amp without a bunch of pedals and a bunch of choices, you know, and that bike's great for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the DCT. And uh, so was uh, Jess McKinley, our associate editor, when he went and wrote it uh, originally. He He's an enduro bike, enduro guy, uh, you know, top-notch off-road rider. And he, you know, it, it was initially uh, skeptical of the DCT. But when he came back from South Africa on the intro, there's pictures of him, you know, uh, full lock slide, wide open, gigantic roost and uh, jumping it. And he came back and he said, that DCT is great. And I can't imagine buying the bike without it, really. Oh, it's fantastic. You, you know, it's funny because when I rode it off the lot, um, when you put it in the, the the normal drive mode, it just runs like a dog. I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? But, you know, <laughs> of course, there's different sport modes. And I find myself just riding in manual and using the pedal shifters. It's fantastic, you know. And at the end of the day of a long day of riding, you really notice how it, uh, you know, you're a lot less tired, just letting do its own shifting, you know? Yeah, the only thing you have to remember is to put on the parking brake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's caused a lot of near misses. And uh, yeah. so do you know any other punk rock guys who ride dirt bikes? Yeah, there, there are a bunch of punk rockers out there. Um, you, you know, I know a lot of them, when you get to a certain age, like 50, it's like you, you either become a Harley guy or like an adventure rider bike guy, you know, and I th think they're both like the adventure bike thing is kind of like, you know, it's like uh, the minivan, but it's set up like a Humvee, you know, so we have a little bit of dignity out there still. Um, but uh, I know uh, like Mike from the Stitches, he's got some some great uh, classical bikes and does some road racing. Um I've done the Moto Beach uh, hooligan race out here a couple times at Bolshika, and uh, Kevin from Ignite, he's just a monster. He rides a, a big old Priya out there in the in the hooligan class. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's just a ton of guys that, that still ride, and then uh, you just kind of come across their old motocross backgrounds and all that. I just think that, you know, a motorcycle is the purest form you know you're just basically sitting on top of an engine it's it's i always think it's kind of just like punk rock you know without the the frills you're just kind of sitting on top of the guitars and drums that's the way i think it that's a great comparison so with these long careers i want to can you share like your most memorable experience in both music and motorcycles <sighs> wow um <laughs> you know you know um in motorcycles i think it was just the first time that i actually raced and uh i think that was out in elsinore and you know to to enter a race and like go to writers meeting and just walk around the pitch you know you finally felt like you're part of this community you know and uh you know the older guys are all knew each other good natured and they could tell rookies on the line by how nervous they were and they come over and kind of uh calm you down and uh eventually getting like a first your first little trophy for third place you know a little piece of plastic it was the most thrilling thing in the world you know and uh as far as music it was the same thing you know we played we've played 
so many fantastic shows. I mean, we played with Ramones and Cheap Trick and uh, played some venues that were just, you know, that we would go to see concerts when we were kids. But I think the biggest thrill was always that first party that we got together and uh, decided we would be a band and, uh, you know, kind of set up nervously. And then you play that first song and there's a beat of silence and then everyone starts cheering. And then it's like, hey, I'm in a band now. <laughs> Uh, it's funny, I can relate to your uh, first motorcycle uh, experience. Mine was racing too, and uh, it was at Indian Dunes, and I was on a Yamaha 90MX in the beginner class. And the way they ran the system there was the beginners, 90 beginner was the lowest level. There weren't minis yet. And so we lined up and we raced, and then all the other classes would race. And the last class was the uh, you know open pro. And each class would line up behind the class in front of them for the next moto. You that they would that's where you would stage. Right, right. So after the first moto, we stage and we're all these kids on these little 100 class bikes. And the 500 pros are all lined up right in front of us at the starting line on the dirt, <laughs> you know, with Husqvarna's, CZs, BSAs, uh, Mako, uh, Yamaha, Honda, no Honda, Yamaha, and uh, they dropped that uh, starting gate and we all got roosted like you could not possibly believe <laughs> with it. Also the roar, the roar of the motorcycles, which had no silencers in nobody in the open pro had a silencer on their bike. It was a straight two stroke and a few four strokes thrown in and a lot of roost. And so that I'll never forget that. That's the baptism on a fire. That's great. And then of course you go out on the track after seeing those guys ride, you're like, going about one third the speed <laughs> yeah fun yeah you know i remember uh saturday saddleback like in the 250 class I, I was an expert class and i could consistently know by who showed up that day if i'd get first or second and so i'm like you know i got this and so i started joining the pro class and it, it's the most humbling experience because you get out there amongst the pros and i just got smoked you know i mean it's a whole different class of guys that are just kind of floating above their bikes. And I just kind of said, you know what? I I don't think I'll ever have what it takes to that special spark to be in that top percent of that, you know, very humbling experience. Exactly. And uh, so you've had long careers in both. I, I'm guessing that there's no plans for uh, retirement soon. Not really. Uh, you know, like I said, with the band, uh, it, it's kind of a strange phenomenon. They still allow us old guys to play. And I always think maybe it was because punk rock was never built on, you know, a glammy image or whatever, that maybe we're going to be able to be like uh, the blues guys. You know, you don't think twice when you see a like a... 80 year old guy playing the blues up there maybe we'll be 80, 80 year old guys playing punk rock out there yeah i mean i've always seen punk rock uh you know i didn't quite get it it took a little while of course for it to become old but when the sex pistols did their uh first reunion tour uh 25th anniversary so that must have been uh, 80 whatever uh and i saw them in 78 i saw them the first time around when they sang us when johnny would sing a song like problems it was like a grouchy old man yeah. So it didn't matter how old he was. He's still gonna. His ranting sounded exactly the same. Oh sure. And so I think, and and also I, I've found that you know, you see a lot of '60s bands when they come back, they they don't sound right. They don't sound like they did 
in the 60s. They sound like some kind of weird version of it now. It's always like, what? why did they do that to the song? You know, what do they do? This is, when we see punk rock bands, they play it exactly like it sounded back then. Right. And there's no sort of disappointment like, oh, why are they doing, oh, oh we're going to do a little 12-bit version of uh, I Got a Gun Now and kind of stretch it out, okay? Right. They just play, you guys just play the song. And, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And, you know, motorcycles, of course, there's always vintage. Are you, do you have any interest in vintage bikes beyond your BMW? Uh, you know, I love to, I love to look at them, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think I have quite the patience or responsibility to keep one in the garage. My, my brother's got a fantastic collection of bikes. that's always rotating. Uh, and, uh, he, he right now has a Kawasaki triple, with the original pipes and so that's that's something to say so you ride with your brother still oh yeah my brother it's funny because i just got back from up north and tomorrow he's he's leaving on a ride up to lone pine and across to death valley as well so he's out there riding as well and uh growing up we were a whole family of uh riders and uh you know southern california in the 70s that, that it was really cool that whole you know sweatshirt and you know, construction boot of a uh, thing where, where families are really discovering dirt bikes and there are fields all over the place and go out to the desert, great time. Well, you definitely keep the long relationships going because in addition to still riding with your brother, you still have Kim Gardner from the original Channel 3 with you. Yeah, we, uh, we met uh, before third grade and, uh, you know, we've been lifelong friends and uh, got into music listening together and learned how to play guitars together. And, you know, we're, you know, we, we talk every day, hang out and we still go on the road. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have those type of people in my life. That's excellent. And you have a wife that bought you a motorcycle. That's it. Yeah. My, I've been married. To... And, and you, you have a, you have a kid now, I understand. Yeah, I've got a, a 27-year-old daughter, and she's out in Las Vegas, uh, and we're all doing well. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know if your listeners know about your your past in music. It's uh, quite impressive as well. I didn't know about that Ramones record until you told me yesterday. Oh, well, I'm a fan. I'm on the fan side of, of, of music, and uh, uh, I happened to go see the—I didn't happen to go see the Ramones. I was— pumped to go see the Ramones in 1976 the first time they played in Los Angeles uh and uh I came kind of from the record collector kid kind of thing like oh we're into this music and oh we heard about this heard about that and so you know when we saw the Ramones in 1976 it was not a bunch of punk rockers there it was a bunch of record collector guys because that they were the only people that knew who they were sure. but anyway a friend of mine handed me a camera and said hey you're sitting up front because back then the Roxy was at the Roxy Theater had seats. It was all seats and tables. It wasn't open dance floor like it is now. And I was first in line. So I was in the front right up against the stage. And he said, hey, here's my camera. Take pictures. And I took the camera and I took a 36 roll of uh, pictures and uh, saved those slides for 40 years until uh, Rhino Records put out a, comp uh, a live recording from that show. And so I got to 40 years later, have the pictures that I took. Uh, on the cover of uh, the Ramones Live at the Roxy album. So that was, that's, that's, as a fan, that's a pretty cool deal to get to have that sort of, uh, that sort of thing. And I, I've had a few other album covers along the way that I took pictures of. That's amazing. You know, I'm a little handy with a camera, but it's great being a fan. It's great that people like you create bands for us to be fans of. 
you know, that's, 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 you know, the, the, you need both ends of it, but, uh, you know, as a, it, you're a music fan, so you can understand the fan part and, but I can't understand, of course, the, the musician and successful and creative musician part. And, uh, so I'll just say thanks to, uh, you guys in Channel 3 for making music great for 40 years. And uh, as somebody, I guess, in the professional motorcycle industry, thanks for uh, buying motorcycles and uh, riding them for 50 years. <laughs> that keeps us in business. Well, absolutely. You know, and you're doing a great job with Ultimate Motorcycling. I mean, you guys really become a premier, uh, you know, web-based uh, magazine. Uh, it's a shame that print across the board is is not on the map anymore but uh growing up reading like you know dirt bike and cycle world and motocross action it really gave me an interest in in creative writing as well because i'd read those editorials you know those old guys rick siemens you know super hunky and all that and i just used to love reading all those that stuff i ended up working at high torque for a while and so i got to meet super hunky and work with them on some level and and Jody Weisel at, at, at Motocross Action those guys were like my heroes and to get to you know oh, wow. be at the same business with them was was pretty great so and getting to interview you for the podcast is also pretty great because Channel 3 is like you know one of my all-time totally awesome LA bands and uh although not quite LA Cerritos actually <laughs> somebody said something about you know you remember the Dills right oh yeah 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 and and I, I like the dills but uh I, I was talking to chip of the dills and i said to him i said chip you guys are one of the best bands from carlsbad ever <laughs> <laughs> high praise indeed <laughs> yeah yeah what they're one of the best carlsbad bands it's great and uh but in the greater southern california area channel three you know is, is one of the legendary bands and you guys you know the fact you're still around never able to play and uh draw a crowd and put out records uh you know it's a testament to that so anyway thanks for talking to us about dirt bikes and punk rock oh i appreciate it don anytime we'll have to go for a ride sometime we shall so uh you know you and your listeners stay, stay safe out there and uh, i really appreciate talking it was great all right thank you very much all right don bye You think you're gone, but the whole life